Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 9 of The House of a Thousand Candles, The Girl and the Rabbit. Wind and rain rioted in the wood, and occasionally both fell upon the library windows with a howl and a splash. The tempest had wakened me. It seemed that every chimney in the house held a screaming demon. We were now well launched upon December, and I was growing used to my surroundings. I had offered myself frequently as a target by land and water. I had sat on a wall and tempted fate, and I had roamed the house constantly expecting to surprise Bates in some act of treachery. But the days were passing monotonously. I saw nothing of Morgan. He had gone to Chicago on some errand, so Bates reported, but I continued to walk abroad every day, and often at night, alert for a reopening of hostilities. Twice I had seen the red tam-o'-shanter far through the wood, and once I had passed my young acquaintance with another girl, a dark, laughing youngster, walking in the highway, and she had bowed to me coldly. Even the ghost in the wall proved inconstant, but I had twice heard the steps without being able to account for them. Memory kept plucking my sleeve with reminders of my grandfather. I was touched at finding constantly his marginal notes in the books he had collected with so much intelligence and loving care. It occurred to me that some memorial, a tablet attached to the outer wall, or perhaps more properly placed in the chapel, would be fitting, and I experimented with designs for it, covering many sheets of drawing paper in an effort to set forth in a few words some hint of his character. On this gray morning I produced this, 1835. The life of John Marshall Glenarm was a testimony to the virtue of generosity, forbearance, and gentleness. The beautiful things he loved were not nobler than his own days. His grandson, who served him ill, writes this of him, 1901. I had drawn these words on a piece of cardboard and was studying them critically when Bates came in with wood. "'Those are unmistakable snowflakes, sir,' said Bates from the window. "'We're in for winter now.' It was undeniably snow. Great lazy flakes of it were crowding down upon the wood. Bates had not mentioned Morgan or referred even remotely to the pistol shot of my first night, and he had certainly conducted himself as a model servant. The man of all work at St. Agatha's, a Scotchman named Ferguson, had visited him several times, and I had surprised them once innocently enjoying their pipes and whiskey and water in the kitchen. "'They're having trouble at the school, sir,' said Bates, from the hearth. "'The young lady's running a little wild, eh?' "'Assisted Teresa's ill, sir. Ferguson told me last night.' "'No doubt Ferguson knows,' I declared, moving the papers about on my desk, conscious and not ashamed of it that I enjoyed these dialogues with Bates.' I occasionally entertained the idea that he would some day brain me as I sat dining upon the beans which he prepared with so much skill, or perhaps he would poison me, that being rather more in his line of business and perfectly easy of accomplishment. But the house was bare and lonely, and he was a resource. So, Sister Teresa's ill, I began, seeing that Bates had nearly finished and glancing with something akin to terror upon the open pages of a dreary work on English cathedrals that had put me to sleep the day before. "'She's been quite uncomfortable, sir, but they hope to see her out in a few days.' "'That's good. I'm glad to hear it.' "'Yes, sir. 
I think we naturally feel interested being neighbors. And Ferguson says that Miss Devereux's devotion to her aunt is quite touching. I stood up straight and stared at Bates's back. He was trying to stop the rattle which the wind had set up in one of the windows. Miss Devereux? I laughed outright. Uh, that's the name, sir. Rather odd, I should call it. Yes, it is rather odd, I said, composed again, but not referring to the name. My mind was busy with a certain paragraph in my grandfather's will. Should he fail to comply with this provision, said property shall revert to my general estate and become, without reservation, and without necessity for any process of law, the property, absolutely, of Marion Devereux, of the county and state of New York. Your grandfather was very fond of her, sir. She and Sister Teresa were brought at the time he died. It was my sorrowful duty to tell them the sad news in New York, sir, when they landed. The devil it was. It irritated me to remember that Bates probably knew exactly the nature of my grandfather's will, and the terms of it were not in the least creditable to me. Sister Teresa and her niece were doubtless calmly awaiting my failure to remain at Glenarm House during the disciplinary year. Sister Teresa, a Protestant nun, and the niece who probably taught drawing in the school for her keep. I was sure it was drawing. Nothing else would, I felt, have brought the woman within the pale of my grandfather's beneficence. I had given no thought to Sister Teresa since coming to Glenarm. She had derived her knowledge of me from my grandfather, and such being the case, she would naturally look upon me as a blackguard and a menace to the peace of the neighborhood. I had, therefore, kept rigidly to my own side of the stone wall. A suspicion crossed my mind, marshalling a host of doubts and questions that had lurked there since my first night at Glenarm. Bates! He was moving toward the door with his characteristic slow step. If your friend Morgan, or anyone else, should shoot me, or if I should tumble into the lake, or otherwise end my earthly career. Bates! His eyes had slipped from mine to the window, and I spoke his name sharply. Yes, Mr. Glenarm. Then Sister Teresa's niece would get this property and everything else that belonged to Mr. Glenarm. Uh, that's my understanding of the matter, sir. Morgan, the caretaker, has tried to kill me twice since I came here. He fired at me through the window the night I came. Bates! I waited for his eyes to meet mine again. His hands opened and shut several times, and alarm and fear convulsed his face for a moment. Bates! Bates! I'm trying my best to think well of you, but I want you to understand. I smote the table with my clenched hand. That if these women, or your employer, Mr. Pickering, or that damned hound, Morgan, or you, damn you, I don't know who or what you are. Think you can scare me away from here. You've waked up the wrong man, and I'll tell you another thing. And you may repeat it to your school teachers and to Mr. Pickering, who pays you, and to Morgan, whom somebody has hired to kill me, that I'm going to keep faith with my dead grandfather, and that when I've spent my year here and done what the old man wished me to do, I'll give them this house and every acre of ground and every damp dollar the estate carries with it. And now one other thing. I suppose there's a sheriff or some kind of constable with jurisdiction over this place, and I could have the whole lot of you put into jail for conspiracy. But I'm going to stand out against you alone, 
Do you understand me, you hypocrite? You stupid, slinking spy? Answer me, quick, before I throw you out of the room. I had worked myself into a great passion and fairly roared my challenge, pounding the table in my rage. Yes, sir, I quite understand you, sir. But I'm afraid, sir. Of course you're afraid, I shouted, and raised anew by his halting speech. You have every reason in the world to be afraid. You've probably heard that I'm a bad lot and a worthless adventurer. But you can tell Sister Teresa, or Pickering, or anybody you please, that I'm ten times as bad as I've ever been painted. Now clear out of here. He left the room without looking at me again. During the morning I strolled through the house several times to make sure he had not left it to communicate with some of his fellow plotters. But I was, I admit, disappointed to find him in every instance busy at some wholly proper task. Once, indeed, I found him cleaning my storm boots. To find him thus humbly devoted to my service, after the raking I'd given him, dulled the edge of my anger. I went back to the library and planned a cathedral in seven styles of architecture, all unrelated and impossible. And when this began to bore me, I designed a crypt in which the wicked should be buried standing on their heads, and only the very good might lie and sleep in peace. These diversions and several black cigars won me to a more amiable mood. I felt better on the whole, for having announced myself to the delectable Bates, who gave me for lunch an embrace of quails, done in a manner that stripped criticism of all weapons. We did not exchange a word, and after knocking about in the library for several hours, I went out for a tramp. Winter had indeed come and possessed the earth, and that had given me a new landscape. The snow continued to fall in great, heavy flakes, and the ground was whitening fast. A rabbit's track caught my eye, and I followed it, hardly conscious that I did so. Then the clear print of two small shoes mingled with the rabbit's trail. A few moments later I picked up an overshoe, evidently lost in the chase by one of Sister Teresa's girls, I reflected. I remembered that while at Tech I had collected diverse memorabilia from schoolgirl acquaintances, and here I was beginning a new series with a string of beads and an overshoe. A rabbit is always an attractive quarry. Few things besides riches are so elusive, and the little fellows have, I'm sure, a shrewd humor peculiar to themselves. I rather envied the schoolgirl who had ventured forth for a run in the first snowstorm of the season. I recalled Aldrich's turn on Gautier's lines as I followed the double trail. However you tread, a tiny mold betrays that light foot all the same. Upon this glistening, snowy fold, at every step, it signs your name. A pretty autograph, indeed. The snow fell steadily, and I tramped on over the joint signature of the girl and the rabbit. Near the lake they parted company, the rabbit leading off at a tangent on a line parallel with the lake, while his pursuer's steps pointed toward the boathouse. There was, so far as I knew, only one student of adventurous blood at St. Agatha's, and I was not in the least surprised to see, on a little sheltered balcony of the boathouse, the red tam-o'-shanter. She wore, too, the covert coat I remembered from the day I saw her first from the wall. Her back was toward me as I drew near, her hands were thrust into her pockets. She was evidently enjoying the soft mingling of the snow with the still, blue waters of the lake, and a girl and a snowstorm are, if you ask my opinion, a pretty combination. The fact of a girl's facing a winter storm argues mightily in her favor. Testifies, if you will allow me, 
to a serene and dauntless spirit, for one thing, and a sound constitution, for another. I ran up the steps, my cap in one hand, her overshoe in the other. She drew back a trifle, just enough to bring my conscience to his knees. I didn't mean to listen that day, I said. I just happened to be on the wall. It was a thoroughly underbred trick, my twitting you about it, and I should have told you before I'd known how to see you. May I trouble you for that shoe? She said, with a great deal of dignity. They taught the cold disdain of man, I supposed, as a required study at St. Agatha's. Oh, certainly. Won't you allow me? No, thank you. I was relieved to tell the truth, for I had been out of the world for most of that period in which a youngster perfects himself in such graces as the putting on of a girl's overshoes. She took the damp bit of rubber, a wet overshoe, even if small and hallowed by associations, isn't pretty, as Venus might have received a soft-shell crab from the hand of a fresh young merman. I was between her and the steps to which her eyes turned longingly. Of course, if you won't accept my apology, I can't do anything about it. But I hope you understand that I'm sincere and humble and anxious to be forgiven. You seem to be making a good deal of a small matter. I wasn't referring to the overshoe, I said. But she didn't relent. If you'll only go away. She rested one hand against the corner of the boathouse while she put on the overshoe. She wore, I noticed, brown gloves with cuffs. How can I go away? You children are always leaving things about for me to pick up. I'm perfectly worn out carrying some girl's beads about with me, and I spoiled a good glove on your overshoe. I'll relieve you two of the beads, if you please. And her tone measurably reduced my stature. She thrust her hands into the pocket of her coat and shook the tam o shanter slightly to establish it in a more comfortable spot on her head. The beads had been in my corduroy coat since I found them. I drew them out and gave them to her. Thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, they are yours, Miss... She thrust them into her pocket. Of course they're mine, she said indignantly, and turned to go. We'll waive proof of property in that sort of thing, I remarked, with, I fear, the hope of detaining her. I'm sorry not to establish a more neighborly feeling with St. Agatha's. The stone wall may seem formidable, but it's not of my building. I must open the gate. That wall is a trifle steep for climbing. I was amusing myself with the idea that my identity was a dark mystery to her. I had read English novels in which the young lord of the manor is always mistaken for the gamekeeper's son by the pretty daughter of the curate who has come home from school to the bell of the county. But my lady of the red tam o' shanter was not a creature of illusions. It serves a very good purpose, the wall, I mean, Mr. Glenarm. She was walking down the steps, and I followed. I'm not a man to suffer a lost schoolgirl to cross my lands unattended in a snowstorm, and the piazza of the boathouse is not, I submit, a pleasant loafing place on a winter day. She marched before me, her hands in her pockets. I liked her particularly that way, with an easy swing and a light and certain step. Her remark about the wall did not encourage further conversation, and I fell back upon the poets. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage, I quoted. Quoting poetry in a snowstorm 
while you stumble through a woodland behind a girl who shows no interest in either your prose or your rhymes, has its embarrassments, particularly when you're breathing a trifle hard from the swift pace your auditor is leading you. "'I've heard that before,' she said, half turning her face, and then laughing as she hastened on. Her brilliant cheeks were a delight to the eye. The snow swirled about her, whitened the crown of her red cap, and clung to her shoulders. "'Have you ever seen snow crystals gleam, break, dissolve in fair, soft, storm-blown hair? Do you know how a man will pledge his soul that a particular flake will never fade, never cease to rest upon a certain flying strand over a girlish temple? And he loses his heart and his wager in a breath. If you fail to understand these things, and are furthermore unfamiliar with the fact that the color in the cheeks of a girl who walks ahead in a driving snowstorm marks the flavor of heaven itself, then I waste time, and you will do well to rap at the door of another inn. I rather missed you, I said, and really, I should have been over to apologize if I hadn't been afraid. Sister Teresa is rather fierce, she declared, and we're not allowed to receive gentlemen callers. It says so in the catalogue. So I imagined. I trust Sister Teresa is improving? Yes, thank you. "'And, Miss Devereux, she is quite well, I hope?' She turned her head as though to listen more carefully, and her step slackened for a moment, and then she hurried blithely forward. "'Oh, she's always well, I believe. "'You know her, of course? "'Oh, rather. She gives us music lessons. "'So Miss Devereux is the music teacher, is she? "'Should you call her a popular teacher?' The girl's caller, she seemed moved to mirth by the recollections. Miss Prim and Prosy. Ugh! I exclaimed sympathetically. Tall and hungry looking, with long talons that pound the keys with grim delight. I know the sort. She's a sight! And my guide laughed approvingly. But we have to take her. She's part of the treatment. You speak of St. Agathos as though it were a sanatorium. "'Oh, it's not so bad. I've seen worse. "'Where do most of the students come from? "'All what you call Hoosers?' "'Oh, no, they're from all over. "'Cincinnati, Chicago, Cleveland, Indianapolis. "'What the magazines call the Middle West. "'I believe that is so. "'The bishop addressed us once as the flower of the Middle West "'and made us really wish he'd come again. "'We were approaching the gate.' Her indifference to the storm delighted me. Here, I thought in my admiration, is a real product of the Western world. I felt that we had made strides toward such a comradeship as it is proper should exist between a schoolgirl in her teens and a male neighbor of twenty-seven. I was, going back to English fiction, the young squire walking home with the curate's pretty young daughter and conversing with fine condescension. We girls all wish we could come over and help hunt the lost treasure. It must be simply splendid to live in a house where there's a mystery. Secret passages and chests of doubloons and all that sort of thing. My, Squire Glenarm, I suppose you spend all your nights exploring secret passages. This free expression of opinion startled me, though she seemed wholly innocent of impertinence. Who says there's any secret about the house? I demanded. Oh, Ferguson, the gardener, and all the girls. I fear Ferguson is drawing on his imagination. Well, 
All the people in the village think so. I've heard the candy shop woman speak of it often. She'd better attend to her taffy, I retorted. Oh, you mustn't be sensitive about it. All us girls think it ever so romantic, and we call you sometimes the Lord of the Realm. And when we see you walking through the darkling wood at Evenfall, we say, My Lord is brooding upon the treasure chests. This, delivered in the stilted tone of one who is half quoting and half improvising, was irresistibly funny, and I laughed with good will. <laughs> I hope you've forgiven me, I began, kicking the gate to knock off the snow and taking the key from my pocket. But I haven't, Mr. Glenarm. Your assumption is, to say the least, unwarranted. I got that from a book. It isn't fair for you to know my name and for me not to know yours, I said, leadingly. You are perfectly right. You are Mr. John Glenarm, the gardener told me, and I am just Olivia. They don't allow me to be called Miss yet. I'm very young, sir. You've only told me half, and I kept my hand on the closed gate. The snow still fell steadily, and the short afternoon was nearing its close. I did not like to lose her. The life, the youth, the mirth for which she stood. The thought of Glenarm House and the snow-hung wood and of the long winter evening that I must spend alone moved me to delay. Lights already gleamed in the school building straight before us, and the sight of them smote me with loneliness. Olivia Gladys Armstrong, she said, laughing, brushed past me through the gate, and ran lightly over the snow toward St. Agatha's. We'll return to Chapter 10, right after this sponsor message. And now Chapter 10 of The House of a Thousand Candles. An Affair with the Caretaker I read in the library until late, hearing the howl of the wind outside with satisfaction in the warmth and comfort of the great room. Bates brought in some sandwiches and a bottle of ale at midnight. If there's nothing more, sir? That is all, Bates. And he went off sedately to his own quarters. I was restless and in no mood for bed and mourned the lack of variety in my grandfather's library. I moved about from shelf to shelf, taking down one book after another, and while thus engaged came upon a series of large volumes extra illustrated in watercolors of unusual beauty. They occupied a lower shelf, and I sprawled on the floor like a boy with a new picture book in my absorption, piling the great volumes about me. They were on related subjects pertaining to the French Chateau. In the last volume I found a sheet of white notepaper no larger than my hand, a forgotten bookmark I assumed and half crumpled it in my fingers before I noticed the lines of a pencil sketch on the side of it. I carried it to the table and spread it out. It was not the bit of idle penciling it had appeared to be at first sight. A scale had evidently been followed, and the lines drawn with a ruler. With such trifles my grandfather had no doubt amused himself. There was a long corridor indicated, but of this I could make nothing. I studied it for several minutes, thinking it might have been a tentative sketch of some part of the house. In turning it about, under the candelabrum, I saw that in several places the glaze had been rubbed from the paper by an eraser, and this piqued my curiosity. I brought a magnifying glass to bear upon the sketch. The drawing had been made with a hard pencil, and the eraser had removed the lead, but a well-defined imprint remained. I was able to make out the letters, capital N, period, Capital W, period, three-quarters to C, period. 
a reference clearly enough to the points of the compass in a distance. The word ravine was scrawled over a rough outline of a doorway or opening of some sort, and then the phrase, the door of bewilderment. Now, I'm rather an imaginative person. That is why engineering captured my fancy. It was through his trying to make an architect, a person who quarrels with women about the kitchen sinks, of a boy who wanted to be an engineer, that my grandfather and I failed to hit it off. From boyhood I had never seen a great bridge or watched a locomotive climb a difficult hillside without a thrill, and a lighthouse still seems to me quite the finest monument a man can build for himself. My grandfather's devotion to old churches and medieval houses always struck me as trifling and unworthy of a grown man. And fate was busy with my affairs that night, for instead of lighting my pipe with a little sketch, I was strangely impelled to study it seriously. I drew for myself rough outlines of the interior of Glenarm House as it had appeared to me, and then I tried to reconcile the little sketch with every part of it. The door of bewilderment was the charm that held me. The phrase was in itself a lure. The man who had built a preposterous house in the woods of Indiana and called it the House of a Thousand Candles was quite capable of other whims, and as I bent over the scrap of paper in the candle-lighted library, it occurred to me that possibly I had not done justice to my grandfather's genius. My curiosity was thoroughly aroused as to the hidden corners of the queer old house, round which the wind shrieked tormentingly. I went to my room, put on my corduroy coat, for its greater warmth than going through the cold halls, took a candle and went below. One o'clock in the morning is not the most cheering hour for exploring the dark recesses of a strange house, but I had resolved to have a look at the ravine opening and determine, if possible, whether it bore any relation to the door of bewilderment. All was quiet in the great cellar, only here and there an area window rattled dolorously. I carried a tape line with me and made measurements of the length and depth of the corridor and of the chambers that were set off from it. These figures I entered in my notebook for further use, and sat down on an empty nail keg to reflect. The place was certainly substantial. The candle at my feet burned steadily with no hint of a draft, but I saw no solution of my problem. All the doors along the corridor were open, or yielded readily to my hand. I was losing sleep for nothing. My grandfather's sketch was meaningless, and I rose and picked up my candle, yawning. Then a curious thing happened. The candle, whose thin flame had risen unwaveringly, sputtered and went out as if a sudden gust had swept the corridor. I had left nothing open behind me, and the outer doors of the house were always locked and barred. But someone had gained ingress to the cellar by an opening of which I knew nothing. I faced the stairway that led up to the back hall of the house, when to my astonishment steps sounded behind me, and turning, I saw, coming toward me, a man carrying a lantern. I marked his careless step. He was undoubtedly on familiar ground. As I watched him, he paused, lifted the lantern to a level with his eyes, and began sounding the wall with a hammer. Here, undoubtedly, was my friend Morgan, again. There was the same periodicity in the beat on the wall that I had heard in my own rooms. He began at the top, and went methodically to the floor. I leaned against the wall where I stood, and watched the lantern slowly coming toward me. 
The small revolver with which I had fired at his flying figure in the wood was in my pocket. It was just as well to have it out with the fellow now. My chances were as good as his, though I confess I did not relish the thought of being found dead the next morning in the cellar of my own house. It pleased my humor to let him approach in this way, unconscious that he was watched, until I should thrust my pistol into his face. His arms grew tired when he was about ten feet from me, and he dropped the lantern and hammer to his side, and swore under his breath impatiently. Then he began again, with greater zeal. As he came nearer, I studied his face in the lantern's light with interest. His hat was thrust back, and I could see his jaw hard set under his blond beard. He took a step nearer, ran his eyes over the wall, and resumed his tapping. The ceiling was something less than eight feet, and he began at the top. In settling himself for the new series of strokes, he swayed toward me slightly, and I could hear his hard breathing. I was deliberating how best to throw myself upon him, but as I wavered he stepped back, swore at his ill luck, and flung the hammer to the ground. "'Thanks!' I shouted, leaping forward and snatching the lantern. "'Stand just where you are!' With the revolver in my right hand and the lantern held high in my left, I enjoyed his utter consternation, as my voice roared in the corridor. "'It's too bad we meet under such strange circumstances, Morgan,' I said. "'I'd begun to miss you, but I suppose you've been sleeping in the daytime to gather strength for your night prowling.' "'You're a fool,' he growled. He was recovering from his fright. I knew it by the gleam of his teeth in the yellow beard. His eyes, too, were moving restlessly about. He undoubtedly knew the house better than I did, and was considering the best means of escape. I did not know what to do with him now that I had him at the point of a pistol.' and in my ignorance of his motives and my vague surmise as to the agency back of him, I was filled with uncertainty. "'You needn't hold that thing quite so near,' he said, staring at me coolly. "'I'm glad it annoys you, Morgan,' I said. "'It may help you to answer some questions I'm going to put to you.' "'So you want information, do you, Mr. Glenarm? I should think it would be beneath the dignity of a great man like you to ask a poor devil like me for help.' "'We're not talking of dignity,' I said. "'I want you to tell me how you got in here.' He laughed. "'You're a very shrewd one, Mr. Glenarm. "'I came in by the kitchen window, if you must know. "'I got in before your solemn jack-of-all-trades locked up, "'and I walked down to the end of the passage there,' "'he indicated the direction with a slight jerk of his head, "'and slept until it was time to go to work. "'You can see how easy it was.' "'I laughed now at the sheer assurance of the fellow.' If you can't lie better than that, you needn't try again. Face about now, and march. I put new energy into my tone, and he turned and walked before me down the corridor in the direction from which he had come. We were, I dare say, a pretty pair, he tramping doggedly before me, I following at his heels with a lantern and my pistol. The situation had played prettily into my hands, and I had every intention of wresting from him the reason for his interest in Glenarm House and my affairs. "'Not so fast,' I admonished sharply. "'Excuse me,' he replied, mockingly. He was no common rogue. I felt the quality in him with a certain admiration for his scoundrelly talents. A fellow, I reflected, who was best studied at the point of a pistol. I continued at his heels and poked the muzzle of the revolver against his back from time to time to keep him assured of my presence.' a device that I was to regret a second later. 
We were about ten yards from the end of the corridor when he flung himself backward upon me, threw his arms over his head, and seized me about the neck, turning himself lightly until his fingers clasped my throat. I fired blindly once, and felt the smoke of the revolver in my own nostrils. The lantern fell from my hand, and one of the other of us smashed it with our feet. A wrestling match in that dark hole was not to my liking. I still held on to the revolver, waiting for a chance to use it, and meanwhile he tried to throw me, forcing me back against one side and then the other of the passage. With a quick rush he flung me away, and in the same second I fired. The whir of the shot in the narrow corridor seemed interminable. I flung myself on the floor, expecting a return shot, and quickly enough a flash broke upon the darkness dead ahead, and I rose to my feet, fired again, and leaped to the opposite side of the corridor and crouched there. We had adopted the same tactics, firing and dodging to avoid the target made by the flash of our pistols, and watching and listening after the roar of the explosions. It was a very pretty game, but destined not to last long. He was slowly retreating toward the end of the passage, where there was, I remembered, a dead wall. His only chance was to crawl through an area window I knew to be there, and this would, I felt sure, give him into my hands. After five shots apiece there was a truce. The pungent smoke of the powder caused me to cough, and he laughed. "'Have you swallowed a bullet, Mr. Glenarm?' he called. I could hear his feet scraping on the cement floor. He was moving away from me, doubtless intending to fire when he reached the area window and escape before I could reach him. I could hear his feet scraping on the cement floor. He was moving away from me, doubtless intending to fire when he reached the area window and escape before I could reach him. I crept warily after him, ready to fire on the instant, but not wishing to throw away my last cartridge. That I resolved to keep for close quarters at the window. He was now very near the end of the corridor. I heard his feet strike some boards that I remembered lay on the floor there, and I was nerved for a shot and a hand-to-hand struggle, if it came to that. I was sure that he sought the window. I heard his hands on the wall as he felt for it. Then a breath of cold air swept the passage, and I knew he must be drawing himself up to the opening. I fired and dropped to the floor. With the roar of the explosion I heard him yell, but the expected return shot did not follow. The pounding of my heart seemed to mark the passing of hours. I feared that my foe was playing some trick, creeping toward me perhaps to fire at close range, or to grapple with me in the dark. The cold air still whistled into the corridor, and I began to feel the chill of it. Being fired upon is disagreeable enough, but waiting in the dark for a shot is worse. I rose and walked toward the end of the passage. Then his revolver flashed and roared directly ahead, the flame of it so near that it blinded me. I fell forward confused and stunned, but shook myself together in a moment and got upon my feet. The draft of air no longer blew into the passage. Morgan had taken himself off through the window and closed it after him. I made sure of this by going to the window and feeling of it with my hands. I went back and groped about for my candle, which I found without difficulty, and lighted. I then returned to the window to examine the catch. To my utter astonishment, it was fastened with staples, driven deep into the sash, in such way that it could not possibly have been opened without the aid of tools. I tried it at every point. Not only was it securely fastened, but it could not possibly be opened without an expenditure of time and labor. There was no doubt whatever that Morgan knew more about Glenarm House than I did. It was possible, but not likely, that he had crept past me in the corridor and gone out through the house or by some other cellar window. My eyes were smarty from the smoke of the last shot 
and my cheek stung with the burnt powder had struck my face. I was alive, but in my vexation and perplexity not, I fear, grateful for my safety. It was, however, some consolation to feel sure I had winged the enemy. I gathered up the fragments of Morgan's lantern and went back to the library. The lights in half the candlesticks had sputtered out. I extinguished the remainder and started to my room. Then, in the great dark hall, I heard a muffled tread as of someone following me, not on the great staircase, nor in any place I could identify, yet unmistakably on steps of some sort beneath or above me. My nerves were already keyed to a breaking pitch, and the ghost-like tread in the hall angered me. Morgan, or his ally Bates, I reflected, at some new trick. I ran into my room, found a heavy walking stick, and set off for Bates's room on the third floor. It was always easy to attribute any sort of mischief to the fellow, and undoubtedly he was crawling to the house somewhere on that errand that boded no good to me. It was now past two o'clock, and he should have been asleep and out of the way long ago. I crept to his room and threw open the door without, I must say, the slightest idea of finding him there. But Bates the Enigma, Bates the incomparable cook, the perfect servant, sat at a table, the light of several candles falling on a book over which he was bent with that maddening gravity he had never yet in my presence thrown off. He rose at once, stood at attention, inclining his head slightly. "'Yes, Mr. Glenarm?' "'Yes, the devil!' I roared at him, astonished at finding him. Sorry, I must say. There. The stick fell from my hands. I did not doubt he knew perfectly well that I had some purpose in breaking in upon him. I was baffled, and in my rage floundered for words to explain myself. I thought I heard someone in the house. I don't want you prowling about in the night, do you hear? Certainly not, sir, he replied, in a grieved tone. I glanced at the book he had been reading. It was a volume of Shakespeare's comedies open at the first scene of the last act of the winter's tale. Quite a pretty bit of work, that, I should say, he remarked. It was one of my late master's favorites. Go to the devil, I bawled at him, and went down to my room and slammed the door in rage and chagrin. Join us next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. for Chapter 11 of The House of a Thousand Candles. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thank you for joining us. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.